What is up? What is going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Threequel. It may not be November 5th, but we will remember it after talking about this movie. We're talking V for Vendetta on the other side of the song. How is everybody doing today? Thank you again for joining us on the threequel. As always, I am your host, Ethan Klein, here with my two co-hosts, Mike Duranik and Brad Miller, talking V for Vendetta, Mike's pick for the month of March. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm I'm doing great, Ethan. I'm I'm ready to dive into this one. It was my pick, and uh, it met all my expectations upon a rewatch. So I'm, as always, really excited to hear what you guys uh, have to say and how you break it down. Yeah. So uh, the way we do the show, obviously, or, or maybe if you're new to the show, is uh, any movie we're talking about has to be at least five years old and come out in the month that the episode comes out in. Uh, so we have a conversation about uh, movies that would be good choices for the show, but then we all get to pick our own as well. Last week we did my pick for the month of March, Inside Man, and I had the opportunity to rave about that, and uh, we had that conversation too with uh, these guys about what that is. This was Mike's pick for the month of March. We'll round out March next week with Brad's pick, an entirely different film <laughs> than we've done uh, to kick off this month, but here we are. Uh, the third week of the month with V for Vendetta. Uh, gentlemen, let's get into it as we always do. And Mike, I'll let you go first since it was your pick. How did you come to see V for Vendetta for the first time? And what was your opinion that you brought in to this rewatch? Well, I had uh, no history with the uh, the source material before my first watch, was not familiar with the, the graphic novel at all, um, and actually went to go see it. Uh, it was released when I was in college. I went to go see it in, uh, in the theater at Bloomington, um, and so saw it while it was in theater. And the expectations that I, I mean, I was blown away by it, quite frankly, um, when I saw it the first time. I, I've seen it a couple times since, but... Uh, when I saw it on the list to pick for this month, uh, I immediately was kind of drawn to it and was was hoping that you guys wouldn't laugh me out of the room when I threw it out there. And uh, my expectations heading into the rewatch were quite high, uh, and, it, and it met them. I really thoroughly enjoyed it again uh, and look forward to discussing some of the nuances of it and some of the reasons for that with you guys. Brad, how did you come to see V for Vendetta for the first time? So I came to see the film um, it's probably two or three years ago for the first time, um, just watching it in the living room. Uh, I don't know what it was that stood out that made me choose it that day, but I um, picked it, something said, hey, you know, watch this. And uh, I checked it out and was, was not disappointed. Yeah, so I this I'm trying to think and I can't think of anything else that stands out. Uh, that would take this title from V for Vendetta, but I believe that this is the first R-rated movie that I saw in theaters. Uh, I do remember seeing this in theaters. Um, I, I mean, I would just assume that the reason that my dad wanted to go see it was because it was just an action film, uh, but I remember going. I remember him saying that it was rated R and that at any point, if he said that we were going to leave, we were going to leave and there was going to be no discussion about it. And I said, okay, like whatever. I just wanted to go see a movie. Uh, so I saw this probably opening weekend, if not within the first couple weeks. And I have been a big fan of this movie ever since. I think this is, I mean, in terms of comic book movies, one of the lesser known uh, comic book movies for sure, especially the time it came out. You know, we're talking early 2000s. This is when the X-Men movies are coming out. This is two years before Iron Man comes out and the MCU gets kicked off. So it gets lost in the shuffle there. Um, and it it definitely, when you say comic book movie, it doesn't sell that way. It, it is not in the same vein as any of those other comic book films. It is just based off of a graphic novel, really, more than a comic book series. Um, but for me, it, it is high up there, especially, you know, last week I was talking about how I feel uh inside man is underrated and underappreciated just in general 
this is definitely underappreciated in the graphic novel comic book realm in my opinion that's what i was bringing into this rewatch and uh it absolutely uh did not disappoint is one i enjoy going back to and i hadn't gone back to it in probably five or six years so that opportunity was one uh, that I was excited to go with. So let's get into the world of V for Vendetta. This movie, I think walking into it this time, what I really was excited to see again was, it, I mean, it is the performance of Hugo Weaving, though we never see Hugo Weaving. We had talked about him a couple weeks ago with The Matrix as the villain uh, playing Agent Smith. Here he is as our hero uh but once again we're just kind of on this run we've had this conversation week after week anti-hero uh definitely does things a little bit different than your typical you know superman or batman hero would and i was blown away by the performance that he gives without ever seeing any emotion just having to hear what he's saying and uh this performance was top notch for me and carried this movie through and through in maybe even more ways than I had remembered from previous times watching this movie. Yeah. Hugo Weaving, we had talked about him in the matrix. Uh, and as I was reflecting on that and then reflecting on this movie, um, an exceptionally gifted actor in terms of his ability to deliver, um, you know, in the matrix movie, you see it with maybe just a stoic face and minimal facial expression, but you hear it in the infliction in his voice. Certainly in this movie, you, you don't see it at all in the face, but just the way he is able to carry this role using just his vocal performance, uh, quite exceptional. Uh, and really, I think, uh, probably an underrated actor, um, but certainly has had some huge roles in some of my all-time favorites, particularly when you roll into Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think that uh, um, I tried to watch it through the lens of like, you know, just using him using his body as his acting ability. And like, I mean, because you can't see his face, you can't see the expressions. And like, like you said, with um, The Matrix, it's the exact opposite. He's using his his voice and a, a little bit of facial stuff there, but um, does really, really well with the, with the body language in this movie and, and carrying it through a, a physical acting standpoint. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was really impressed with him, especially watching it this time. And I should say, like in The Matrix, obviously, there are facial expressions there. They're very mm -hmm. subtle, but they're powerful in that character. The, the, the subtleness carries it. You compare it to this where you have no facial expressions and then you compare it to maybe his role as, as you know, Elrond in The Lord of the Rings, where some of the more facial expressions at some points become more pronounced. Uh, and it just shows a number of different gears that that the guy has to be able to convey the emotion. Well, yeah, I it. think I was going to touch on this, too. And Mike said it underrated, I think, is absolutely the phrase that needs to be used for Hugo Weaving, because when you look through his filmography, I mean, the guy. I can't find a point where I think back to a Hugo weaving role and I'm like, yeah, he dropped the ball there. He always brings it, whatever he's doing. I mean, in the matrix, he's, he's a robot, right? That's what he's supposed to be. He's not supposed to have a lot of emotion. If he is learning any emotion in that film, it's hate. And that absolutely comes through in the disdain that he has for the main characters and that. And then you take the flip side of this, where even though we never see his face, he is probably playing the most animated and over the top, comic book character uh at least lead comic book character in a movie in the last 20 years i mean there there is not that i can think of in this world of graphic novel comic book films where the main character is th the way that he is in this movie just such a unique role this vaudevillian over-the-top artistic person who also has the ability to kill dozens of men within 15 seconds only using knives right he is this super being but the personality that he has is something that really no other character in this genre brings forth and he does it amazingly uh wearing a mask the entire time so he does great we, we'll, we can keep going through it as we do with the other actors in this film and something i did realize this time and it didn't I don't want it to sound like this takes away from the movie for me, but I have completely, I have just come to the conclusion 
much like Brad with Jodie Foster, I don't like Natalie Portman. I don't know if we're going to end up having an argument here. I don't know if it, maybe Mike is like super into Natalie Portman. I don't like her. And I, and I don't know what it is, but there was something even in this movie that I like. She just didn't do it for me. She did not bring it like other characters in this film do. And I'm interested to see what you guys think, because there was a lot of times that I couldn't get past it. Um, I did not have the same reaction uh, watching it. Like it didn't, it didn't stick out like the Jodie Foster performances did for me, but I'm kind of thinking back as to what would make you feel that way. Is it, is it her in this film or is it her in general that you, that you don't like? It was her in general, but going into this, I thought, well, at least I have this, at least there's this movie that I like. And then watching this, I just kept getting flashes of the Star Wars prequel movies, of the Thor movies, of these other things where I was just like, yeah, I'm not a fan of hers. I've never seen Black Swan, probably never will see Black Swan unless for some reason we get to a point where we do it on this. And I know that she won an Academy Award for that. Not my kind of movie. And, and we know and we know why you're not going to see that film. But Yeah, because I'm not a ballet fan. But it... Uh-huh. I yeah I just can't I don't know there's just something about her style of acting and I'm not even saying she's a bad actress it just doesn't work for me so Mike please I'm assuming you're about to defend Natalie Portman so please what if it were called Yellow Swan I probably still would not see it (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, I don't know if my if my wife is listening to these, but she she right now by now would be screaming. Of course, Mike's going to defend Natalie Portman. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think if you can if you take a look at Natalie Portman's performance through the the lens of the Star Wars prequels, which were by all accounts like atrocious scripts, and really only um, Ian McGregor was able to to salvage much of anything from them. Yeah, those were putrid performances uh she didn't add a whole lot to a really terrible script right and so uh i i would give mcgregor really the only nods up for making well probably ian mcdermott as well for making a bad script work for them right in terms of the dialogue things of that nature um i think you know natalie portman i i do like natalie portman a lot i i have seen black swan and, and thought it was a very solid performance i've liked her in some other movies like garden state um and of that ilk she also has you know she's walked an interesting career where she's done some roles that were more trying to get academy attention other roles that were mainstream like you said the star wars the the thor movies um, she's had a really interesting career to this point. It, it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I would defend Natalie as an actress, but I can also understand how she's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, and in this movie, I will say there were a couple of, of points um, where it felt like overacting, perhaps. Uh, but she also, she's got a very expressive face. And perhaps like the one scene I'll, I'll give you in, I would defend her, but I will give you this. I did have a little bit of Star Wars flashback um, during the scene where she's crying. And it just took me over to Anakin, you're breaking my heart with some overacting there. And so I can I think that 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 can be a fair critique. But I think her overall body of work. um, And now I know that Brad or I will have to pick Black Swan whenever that comes up, unless Ethan magically just like omits it from that list. Um, But I think her overall body of work is better than you're giving her credit for. And that that's a well, fair point. She is. A- hold on, hold on. But before you, before you defend that, Ethan, I was thinking back and looking at the IMDb uh, for her, and I I think you're right. I looked back at that, and there's like, for being as popular of an actress as she is, and is in many mainstream films as she's in, like. I, I see your point. I, I want to give you credit for that one and say, point Ethan on that uh, on that that point of view. And well, I appreciate that, Brad. Thank you. Those those points always do. You, I I'm usually handing you guys points for trivia or they for mean, Rotten Tomatoes. Game. They, they mean nothing. They mean nothing. But hey, let's let's it, just go with it. It's like whose line is it anyway? It's our own version of it. Um, 
I'm not saying that I don't think she's talented. I just think that as far as mainstream talented actresses go, she is one of she's on the farthest spectrum for what Ethan is going to enjoy. Me as a person is going to enjoy that being said, I mean, Mike, you said what's up next for her. She's coming back into the Marvel cinematic universe and she is going to be playing now Thor. She's going to be lady Thor, the mighty Thor in, in the upcoming Thor movie. I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see where it goes, but, and I think the thing that really did it for me, I was kind of on the edge and I remembered I was like, you know, I know that there's got to be something at the end of the movie. I remembered her like having some moment and we can kind of transition this into a discussion back into our friends, the Wachowskis. The line she delivers at the end to uh, the detective Finch, I literally put my head in my hands. And it, and again, and Mike said too, like, I, I'm not familiar with the source material, so I don't know what parts of this they just pulled off the page and put on the screen. But from a writing perspective, this and just a delivery perspective, what really just sealed the deal for me that she just didn't do it in this movie for me was the line at the end about he asked her who who was he? She says, you know, he was Edward Dante's. He was my father. He was my mother. He was you. It did not work for me when 30 seconds earlier, they just told each other they loved each other. Her response to falling in love with a person is, he was my dad and my mom and my brother. Like it, it oh. I would I would agree. That was a confusing, that was a confusing uh that was a confusing line overall. Uh and and I also have to give credit where credit's due. So as I looked, I just flipped through her filmography as well. Um I probably overrate her based off of her performance in a couple of movies that I really like her in compared to the, where the rest of her career has been. I think that that's fair. I mean, we can all agree that she peaked in 1995 with heat, which was her second movie. And then star Wars happened. Like, let's just, let's just call spades. Spade. So that, that line. And the reason I'm, I'm asking is because um, that was actually the, the line I was going to bring for, for my favorite with, the point of like saying he is, he, you know, he's everybody. He represents us all. I guess how does how does that not coexist with the fact that she may have fell in love with him? Like he, I mean, if if you if you ask me who someone is, I don't think I need to tell you who my how how I feel about them or my relationship with them to let you know who they are. And what he needed to know was it doesn't matter who this guy was he's everybody, you know, like, so I guess where, what, why the, the disdain or dislike for that line and how, how she delivered it. The sentiment of the line, I appreciate and I understand. And it gets to the core of the movie, which is what he's getting at the entire time that it's not, he's not wearing a mask for any other reason other than he wants this to be a faceless idea that I appreciate my entire issue is just first off she has zero emotion when she delivers that line what could what should be this triumphant moment of all of this coming together the man she claims that she loves sacrificing himself to make the world a better place she has zero emotion when she tells the police officer that line secondly from a writing perspective it just didn't work with me that she instantly went to like she just got done putting this man that she loves onto this train, moving it forward, seeing out his vision and just the stylistic idea that, yeah, he, he reminds me of my father and my mother and my brother. Like I just, there could have been, a, there should have been a more powerful way to tell us as an audience, what she was feeling while also conveying that message to the police officer. And I mean, the reason oh. I brought it up was to have a conversation about the Wachowskis too, but I understand also what you're saying. But I also I also think too, like you don't have to lustfully love somebody to love them, or you don't have to, you know, it, the love doesn't have to be in a sexual nature. Like for her to say love to him, I love you, you know, and and I don't remember her delivering that line of I love you, or I, I could just be misplacing it, but I mean she she can love her mother her father her brother like wh whoever this guy represents 
she also in that same line of delivering the I, I love you or the affection talk was saying like you're the most important you might be the most important thing that has ever happened to me and I don't even know what you look like I don't even know any of this or any of that and like there's through that whole ending sequence of the film the last 10-15 minutes there's a whole lot of like understanding how important this guy is to her with without her she's falling in love with the idea like i guess what she kind of mentioned not necessarily the man himself i i don't know maybe maybe i picked up on that a little bit different but i, I see what i see what you're saying um and also we can get into the wachowski conversation a little bit with some other decisions they made in the film but um yeah i guess I just wanted to dig into that since that was one of my favorite lines of just the idea that it was portraying. Yeah. I think for me, you know, my point would be, it, it was confusing to me to see them go from this emotional send off to that. And so I agree with Ethan on, on that sense, but I also definitely appreciated the sentiment that she was passing along in that line. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, uh, the line can work. I think it's just a little bit jarring to move from his death and the way that that was portrayed directly to that line in the send off, um, you know, with uh, with the uh, officer there. That's why we have three voices on this show so that we can get all of those different views. Let's let's keep it rolling into the Wachowskis. So this is when Mike ruined my trivia question two weeks ago by knowing uh, the Wachowski's upcoming career. Uh, we talked about, you know, they directed uh, all the Matrix films, obviously. And we talked about how, you know, they, they came out with the first Matrix, hit a home run for their time. However you view the movie now is however you view it now, but it is still uh, obviously a fixture uh, in pop culture with the fact that there's a fourth one coming out yet this year. Uh, but we all agreed that from the Matrix forward in their directing efforts, uh, it was less than stellar. Uh, this was right in the middle of their directing career. They come together, they write this film, uh, and with kind of that behind-the-scene aspect of it, it is a first-time director, uh, James McTeague. He was a second-unit director, which, uh, just quick nerd talk on that if you don't know what a second-unit director is, uh, that's more times than not, that is the person that is filming maybe a stunt scene. If the director has to really focus on maybe some rewrites or whatever the director has to focus on that is critically important to the movie moving forward, the second unit director comes in, hey, we got to do this quick action scene today. Go take care of that for me. Or what? It's, it's those other things. So it's an assistant director, I guess, if you want to do that. So James McTeague, was an assistant director on all of the Matrix movies. So he had worked with the Wachowskis before. He gets this as his directorial debut, the first time he's in the chair, uh, and really has not done a whole lot else since in the mainstream film world. Now he's basically uh, reserved himself to filming television. Uh, so this was really his, his one and only big-time shot. He did direct a couple other movies. But it's interesting to me how much of that matrix flavor does still exist in the action parts of this movie. Cause it's absolutely there, especially the final action scene. Yeah. I think it's more blatant in the final action scene, but it, it's there. I'll say he did a, a great job. And if, uh, if the Wachowski's vision needed someone else to be able to put it forward. Maybe the rest of their career to this point would have been more impressive to me. But, uh, you know, I will go out and say right here in the middle of this podcast, I think that this is the best thing that the Wachowskis have, have their name attached to pound for pound. And we just did the Matrix review and I wanted to wait until I at least rewatch this, having rewatched the Matrix recently. But if you told me, hey, Mike, we're going to get together and watch a movie. Which would you rather watch the matrix or V for Vendetta tomorrow? I'd be like, yeah, fire up V for Vendetta again. Um, so I think it's the crowning achievement to their career thus far. Brad, what, what would you say to that? Cause I know what I would say. To it being their crowning achievement. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, 
really, I think the only thing they could have done better is if they had decided to um, sing pop music and become the kings of pop and unseated. But um, other <laughs> outside of that, uh, yeah, I hope hope the fans enjoy that goat sound because I'm I'm really I'm really loving it. Um, outside of that, yeah, this is definitely their their crowning achievement and. Uh, for the for you guys listening that can't see it, the the look that Ethan gives me when he knows I'm going into the <laughs> stuff is uh, oh look I said it again, uh, <laughs> it's great. He just uh, uh, looks down and writes his time because he so he knows where to edit. But um, yeah, so jo- jokes aside, I think that uh, yeah you, you see some flavors of the Matrix in this, but I I do feel like. Um, they, they, they take it in, in many different ways, but, but to answer the question, I guess, a little more directly, uh, yeah, by far, I think it is uh, a better movie than, than The Matrix. And I wish that it had become maybe a little more mainstream and there could be some uh, other ways to take it, you know, maybe some uh, copycat people doing the, the V for Vendetta thing um, and had a couple spinoffs or something. But um, yeah, overall, just, yeah, great film. And I, I will say too, and, and Ethan had said, I wonder how many times we're going to go through this and always have the same opinion on a film. I really thought that I was going to dislike this. I, I this only the second time seeing it. I don't really, I didn't really remember it from the first time around. I wanted to go into this and say, you know what? Ha, I've, I've got the first one I didn't like, but uh, definitely not. Like it is really well done. Um, when I said I wanted to get into the Wachowski talk a little bit, there were, there were a couple things that um, I disliked about it, and it was some of their director directorial choices. Um, and, and the two things that really stood out to me were the beginning is way too confusing. There's too much going on, and, and it's too early on to, like, really care or really know what's happening because um, – now, granted, I will say in their defense, I was a little tired when I started it um, and maybe just wasn't able to focus like I wanted to. But the first 10, 15 minutes, a lot of confusion. And then the second thing that stood out to me that I thought they could have done better on is that there's so many characters and some so many of the guys that they picked for these uh, for the characters or the casting look alike and they don't necessarily like when some of the policemen or detectives or other people are coming on the screen, I can't remember like, okay, now is this a guy that's good? Is this a guy that's bad? What's this guy's motives? Who's this guy? And there's too many characters that they don't do a great job of introducing to a way that you know exactly what's going on. So it took me a little bit longer to kind of figure out who some of these faces were. And then as the movie kind of um, fleshes out a little bit, you you, you definitely see who the, the good guys and bad guys are and, and get to kind of, understand their motives for what they're doing but there was just a little bit of that in there that is kind of confusing at least it was to me i don't know what you guys think about that um but those were the couple things that stood out as i was kind of nitpicking the film that that i wish would have been a little better i think the thing i i agree that there's a lot of confusing aspects to this film and what stood out to me this time uh, most of the questions I had that I was confused about got cleared up, but this is probably my fifth or sixth time seeing this movie. And I was very focused on those few things that I couldn't really recall or put together for myself thinking back on the movie. I very focused, I very much focused on those things to see if those questions did get answered and they did. But to your point for someone seeing this for the first time, there are aspects of it that can be confusing because up until now, you know, him putting her in the prison. I, yes, I knew that he put her in the prison to test her, but I couldn't remember was the woman real. Was this just a story he was creating to prove a point to her? Um, the, the aspect of her parent, her brother dying in the, uh, the chemical attack, the fact that that was actually the, the start of the government taking over London and, and on and on and on. 
that was stuff that I knew there was something, but I didn't know what it was thinking back on it. And I had to really focus this time to catch, okay, there's another story going on in the background of this policeman piecing together this greater conspiracy that V wants them to figure out. But from a base level, if you're just watching this movie for the first time, there is a lot of information in the background that you have to parse out that you may, just may not get. And this may just come across as an action movie about a guy who's pissed off about something. Yeah. And so to that point, I do think um, there were parts of this movie that uh, kind of reflecting back on last week on Inside Man on the big reveal. There were parts of this that felt like there should have been a big reveal coming, but there was never a big reveal delivered. The stuff kind of just spurted out in in, in fits and, and it came and you were able to pull it all together. And so to Brad, to your point, I can't recall necessarily um, what I was confused about when I watched this 15 years ago in the theater. By now, I had seen it enough times that I knew all of those interlocking pieces. And so, you know, I can't recall. Was it clear? Was it not clear? I suspect, though, because there wasn't that big reveal, because some of the reveals were left a little bit uh, in shadow, uh, you know, there are parts of it that can be confusing back to again, you know, who was he and her starting off with a name and then rolling through all of the different people. There's a part, I think the first time you watch this where you might go like, wait, did she just say who he was? Did she know who he was? Some of that stuff is unclear. And with a little bit of a better script probably could have actually taken this movie to a, a whole other level. Well, I think this is the first time that I've actually understood that he was, a that I actually understand what they did to him. I mean, it's taken me 15 years to actually completely say, I know what his backstory is. Obviously going into it, I knew that the government did something to him at this medical quote unquote medical facility. I assume it gave him some extra abilities because he clearly is not a, a fully normal human being in his strength and in the way that he moves and can, can operate but it wasn't until now this time focusing on that that i realized they were testing viral agents on people to see what it would do if they ever wanted to use it that i never was able to put together until i really focused in on it this time saying i want to know if something's there that i didn't pick up on before and it was always there but there are just moments in this movie like them meeting him the two police officers meeting him when he's got uh you know a false face on he gives all of that information in that moment, but there's so many scenes mm -hmm. where he is just spouting things that it's very easy to lose that. And that is, that's the, the part of, I, I can say that the Wachowskis, I don't get it. I can honestly say when I watch, I like this movie, I enjoy this movie. There are parts of the matrix that I enjoy. I am shocked that they got as many chances as they did. And honestly, I'm surprised that they're getting a chance at a fourth matrix. I'm not surprised that a fourth matrix is being made, but I am shocked that they're getting an opportunity to make it because I don't see it. I think that this first time director was able to, as Mike said, narrow their vision. And I think that because this was from a source material that was also able to narrow in their vision they did give it their own flair, which is good in parts, just like the Matrix is good in parts. But there's a lot of other things that need to come together to focus their efforts to produce something that I want to keep going back and watching again and again. Yeah, I think, you know, well, uh, well said. And, and I think that uh, it sounds like we're all kind of in some semblance of agreement in terms of their critiques of the movie. Um, some of some of the parts of it that maybe weren't as clear as they could have been and didn't deliver for, for being somewhat convoluted. Yeah. And I think the thing that I like about films like this and the reason why it, it's a winner for me is all three of us can watch it. All three of us can get different messages of what is the, what are the writers trying to tell us? What is the director trying to tell us? And um, none of us could be right, but yet it doesn't matter because it's going to depend on what you take from it. And uh, in a lot of ways, this movie can be inspiring um, to, you know, different things that you want to do or that you want to accomplish. And like, it, it's just, yeah, it's a really neat film. It's a way to deliver that. And I think The Matrix does that, too, in a lot of ways. So you kind of understand where they're going from, from a, a writer-director standpoint. Um, 
that they they want to leave things a little bit um, up to the imagination, draw your own conclusion sort of thing, which is why, like Mike said, there there isn't that that big reveal. So I'm going to introduce a couple questions here. We have a little bit extra time. This is actually it just so happened that, you know, this movie was supposed to come out in 2005, November 5th, 2005, got delayed to 2006. We just talked about 2006 last week. So we have a little extra time here that we normally would because we're not just going to send you guys back into the conversation about 2006. So here's the first question I guess I have for you guys. Um, v is a psychopath, correct? Like he, he is nowhere near all there. He's the hero, but he's whacked out of his mind. Well, I think he answers that when, uh, when Natalie Portman in the introduction that the two of them have, when Evie says, are you a crazy person? And he says, I'm sure they would say so. Um, I, I don't think there's, there's any doubt that there's an awful lot going on there, but I think the, the question becomes, you know, truly who was he before he was taken to the facility? Who was he before the experimentation came on him? And, and how much of his, you know, um, you say a crazy person, how much of that is because of who he is? How much of it is because of who he's experienced? How much of it is because of how much time he has spent planning and plotting this, uh, you know, it's not even, it's beyond revenge, right? It, it is this message that he is hoping to, to speak to, to, the the broader uk in this timeline and in this uh in this story yeah i mean to answer your question uh, he i mean very clearly checks the boxes to be considered a psychopath however um like mike's saying it it may not be psychopath or psychopathy from mental illness or um you know just uh not having i i mean the, the key point to to being a psychopath is no a very cloudy moral compass or no no empathy for your victims and he clearly doesn't have empathy for these people that um that he's hurting but it seems justified you know you go back through everything that happened and you want to say yeah i i could see this some of this is justified uh unlike our discussion back to to john wick when we had that that talk a couple years ago and i hope we get into that film sometime but he was driven to to this by what was done to him versus, yeah, he just has this natural um, tendency to, to be a psychopath. Mike, I think you and I just thought of the same moment, which is probably my second favorite scene of the film, which adds to this conversation, I think, perfectly. So go ahead. Yeah, I, I think the argument about him not having empathy seems to be there until you, you consider the scene where he does take the life uh, of the former head physician there at Lark Hill, who uh, Delilah, I think, was the character's name from what I'm looking at. Um, and unlike the others who he kills fairly brutally, uh, he kills her essentially in her sleep without pain. Um I think that there's something to be said for the difference in how he approached that versus some of the other scenes to indicate that he was not just a, you know, in that sense, a cold blooded killing machine. He did see variants and whether it was something that he had seen in observing her leading up to that, or whether it was something in his experience with her at the facility, something said to him, kill her peacefully in her sleep without pain this doesn't have to go down that way. Was that the scene you were thinking of, uh, Ethan? Yeah, I thought because I was hoping we would get into that scene when I posed the question because I agree with every single thing that Brad said. And there's that scene just stands out to me when I asked that question because he has the ability to differentiate. I'm not going to give brutality to this person. I'm not going to be brutal to this person. And especially the conversation they have is such an interesting conversation between the two of them because you can, of everyone, she hates what she has been a part of. And it, it's almost, it's just a, it's an inevitability to him. He has to follow through on what he's done, but this is the one moment where, I mean, obviously he does it. So he wanted to do it on some level, but he almost doesn't want to have to follow through with every single step of it. And it culminates in her apologizing. And just that, that, that is a, for lack of a better word, it's a beautiful moment between him and her. If you want to talk about forgiveness or whatever it is, that conversation they have that I thought that was just an amazing scene, especially when we're talking about his, his drivenness and his being a psychopath. 
And I, I want to counterpoint my counterpoint, but I want to hear what Brad thinks about that before I, I go there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many layers to what we're saying. He clearly is still a psychopath because he still her. He clearly still killed her. He yeah. understood her. I guess her forgiveness, or, or not her forgiveness, but her apology. I think he understood that. But again, the lack of empathy. He went. He still killed her. He doesn't have a, an anecdote that, or an anecdote. What is the right way to say that? Uh, anecdote. Am I saying that right? I think so. I, don't know. I don't know, but you, well, you said, you said the words. word right three times. Yeah, if the you way keep repeating. The way, well, is it anecdote or anecdote when you have uh, to reverse something bad that happened? Like if I take a, a pill. Antidote. <laughs> oh, well, it, it doesn't matter. You, people listening know what I'm trying to say. Um, if you, the fact if you've gotten this far on the podcast, that's your, that's, that's your laugh for the night. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. Like there, there's still several levels to, it doesn't matter how much he understood her forgiveness or her apology. I keep saying that wrong too. The fact is he still killed her. The fact is he still didn't care enough about what she was saying to, or, you know, to wait and give her that chance. He killed her first. You know, he, he said, I, I killed you 10 minutes ago while you were sleeping. You know, it, it, someone that's not a psychopath would not just go and stab this person and with this poison. And then the fact, the fact that he stayed and listened to her apology also says psychopath a little bit, like, why not just give her the shot and leave, you know, like there's several layers to show you like, that but it it was nice to see that moment where he was able to hear someone say you know what i'm sorry for what i did to you um but it doesn't erase the fact that the answer to ethan's original question of is he a psychopath yeah, of course he is yeah and you know i think that uh that moment is softened somewhat by the fact that it appears that she is at peace with it and almost is glad that this day has come with the guilt that she has been carrying with her. And it, and it almost feels like she feels like this is the correct ending to that. Uh, but as I promised, my counterpoint to that counterpoint is the way that he handled everything with Evie, right? With saving her from the police and then torturing her to the point of breaking her as if, and perhaps the character did, you know, perhaps V did feel like the only way to help her see was to fully break her the way he was broken. Um, but I think unquestionably, you know, that scene, if there's any doubt, perhaps there's a tiny bit of empathy in the character, but not so much, he may feel it, but not so much that it can break through the action. And I think that the the scene, you know, the entire interrogation scene, the prison cell, everything he did there with, with Evie kind of proves that point. Well, too, and like, the the other part at the end where it it just i i don't know if i agree with his decision to force her to make the decision to to blow up the the building because a lot of that too i'm like all right you you see this all the way through to the end and then when the major thing comes you for lack of a better term wuss out and force her to make the decision and then i'm thinking too like you have no idea that this is going to go off without a hitch. What if she ends up killing thousands of these innocent people that are standing there watching and has to, to live with that as, as uh, you know, the guilt of, of all of this because she pulled the lever. Like clearly that wasn't going to happen because of the way the movie was written. But if this were a real life lens that we're looking at this through is like, why would this guy force her to make this decision to, you know, she she does all of this stuff and now she has to live with the, the guilt of this explosion had it gone wrong. You know, like I, I just maybe I'm reading too much into that, but there were just a lot of levels of he just really, really tortured her through a lot of the film, um, even walking away after she says, let's let's be together. We, we can just run off and go live our lives. And, you know, like, nope, sorry, can't do it. And comes back to her and dies in front of her like there's just a lot of stuff that he puts her through on an emotional level so 
the way I took him choosing to give her that power and again, I don't know the source material. I'm going to choose to give credit to the source material here because I don't really know if the Wachowskis have the ability to create this much of a character arc is that the entire movie, he presented it as his life's journey. His life's goal was to make this change was to, to be this idea that changed the way things were. And I think when she comes back on the day, when, when he walks out into his living room and sees her there at the jukebox, I think at, that's the moment he realizes that he is in love with her, that he had that ability to, to love her, but that she also had the ability to love him. And what he realizes, I thought in that moment, was he's just been hiding all of his hate or at least putting all of his hate on I've been doing it for this idea and he realizes no I've been doing all of this vendetta for me and whoever is going to push this idea forward needs to be better than me because he did he used her in so many different ways you know he when he brought her back he used her key card to to go kill the the talk show person he used her as bait for the priest like he he used her time and again to accomplish these goals and he kept coming back to well i'm doing this for this greater purpose and really what i think he realized in that moment when she came back was even through all that he made this personal connection and he's able to look inside of himself and say no i've been doing all of this because i hate these people and i'm gonna finish that through and i'm gonna see that through but the greater ideal should not be on me it should be on this person who's clearly a better person than I am. Yeah, I, I agree with your take on that, Ethan. I think that it was the moment where he realized if it was truly about an idea, that it could not be him who pulled the switch. It had to live beyond him. And I, I think unquestionably he knew in that moment he was walking towards his death, uh, had to at least realize that as a possibility. Um, that said, that's an awful lot to put on a person, as, as yeah. Brad just pointed out. And I do think it strengthens the argument that uh, that, you know, he had some some severe, uh, you know, psych psychopathy there. And uh, I think that they don't try to hide that in the character. I, but I do think that this discussion in and of itself is what makes this movie so interesting. There are so many different layers to this character as the antihero, as the lead. Um that just kind of pull out and you keep pulling the strings. Uh, it, it's a pretty complex character. Agreed. So changing lanes a little bit here, and I don't know how much uh, we have to get into outside of the operatic music uh, as we talk music for this film. Uh, again, I think we're kind of running into another film where a lot of it is score and not necessarily soundtrack. So that, that that's what I'm remembering in my head, Brad, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to touch on, before we move into some of our games and, and some things like that, before we wrap up our conversation here. Yeah, I, I think um, the soundtrack is probably about, you know, 80% score. Uh, there is a few songs that are, that are credited uh, in the film that aren't on the soundtrack. That's uh, street fighting man by the Rolling Stones. And um, uh, there's the one I, that's not credited on the soundtrack that I want to talk about. And then a couple on the soundtrack itself. I want to, I want to mention because I, I'm realizing as, as I get older, the thing that I appreciate about music differently than when I was younger is some of the subtleness and what it can do to create a scene or to make you remember a scene. And there's, there's three that, that stood out. Uh, two of the songs in the movie, uh, Crimea river, um, which was performed by Julie London. And then um, I found a reason performed by cat power. Um, both just really, really well done, well placed in there. Um, and the, the subtlety of the cat power song on the jukebox uh, when she's standing there is just, it's, it's really, really well done. I, I like what they did with that, but then there's one, I can't remember exactly when it comes in. I think it's being, um, I think it's on his uh, alarm for the morning. It's Long Black Train uh, by Richard Hawley. And it is, it's just one of those where it's like the voice that you can hear in the background is just so perfect. And it highlights that. And it's just like, for whatever reason, I just don't forget that song being there. 
and playing through that moment. And it's just um, things like that in, in their subtlety and their subtleness is just uh, what can really highlight a film. So great job by them. The score, the score is well done. Um, and uh, Be- Beethoven's uh, uh, fifth symphony symphony is, is also in the film as well. So just, uh, yeah, well done by them. And that's, I guess really all I have to say about the soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, I would say for the last 15 years of my life, whenever I hear Beethoven's fifth, I picture uh, that statue or parliament blowing up. So uh, they definitely knew what they were doing when they, when they put that in there uh, and they, they used it to perfection out Mike, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I agree. I think it was very well done. And, uh, they had a great job of uh, did a great job of matching the music to the moments. Um, yeah, a, a particularly strong part of the movie. All right, let's uh, let's move into the Rotten Tomatoes game here. It is Mike's turn to go first. Uh, if you're new to the show, what we do, I think, is it Brad's turn to go first? I don't know. I don't remember. No, oh, it is my turn. You're right because oh. I undercut you last week. All right. Uh, so if you're new to the show, what we do is we just these two guess what the Rotten Tomatoes score for the film is. Uh, whoever's closer wins, but the person has to be within 3% either way. So I believe uh, Mike, you won last week by 1% and then by being right. Yeah. So Mike won last week, Uh, this week, this will be interesting to see. This is, I will say this, this is the biggest gap we have had between critics and audience. I'll not say which way that is, but all of the other films we've done, the critics and the audience have been right within right next to each other, pretty close. This is a pretty large gap. So, Mike, what is your guess for the tomato score of V for Vendetta? Well, basically, everything we've done since this game started has been in the 80s, I think. Um, And that leads me to believe that since I like this more than anything that we've done, um, that it's got to be maybe a little bit lower than that. I will... I'm going to guess the audience score is higher than the critic score on this, and so I'm going to go with 70... Four. And we're guessing the, the critic score? Yes, the critic score. Um, I think the same thing. I think the audience score was probably much higher because um, there are a lot of things that you can nitpick about the film. Um, I'm going to say 72. Uh, well, since we never established a Price is Right clause, uh, I'm going to call this one a tie. It is 73% is the tomato meter for the critics. Uh, the audience is sitting at 90% right now. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, I, and we have nitpicked on some things, but I am surprised it's that low. I really am, because to say that, I mean, what, what was Inside Man? Inside Man was... 84 something i think is it, it was right around there to say that 11 percent of people would like this less i mean i get there's different demographics and things like that and and i love inside man i mean i was championing that movie uh all the way through that episode last week obviously but this is a criminally low score in my opinion uh if, if you're looking at the rotten tomato scale for v for vendetta well, but but if you think about it, like we've picked apart several different things. We've picked apart a, a, a lot of stuff that if a critic's looking at it and not necessarily judging it on its message or, uh, you know, some of the emotional stuff that you can pull out of it. Like you talked about Natalie Portman. We talked about some of the confusion. We talked about um, the delivery of um, some of those final moments having to see it five, six, seven times to understand something, you know, like there, I guess I could see why. And clearly if, if Mike and I were both um, guessing in that range, we weren't too surprised by the fact that they would, would pick that apart. So I guess I'm, I'm not, I'm not super shocked that it's at, at 72 or 73, like you said. Yeah. And for me, it was when you said that it was split with the audience score by that much, although that's, that's quite the the split there, a 17 point split. Uh, it just felt to me like it had to be lower. Um, that said, again, I think this is the fourth week we've we've done this. Uh, and so with Deadpool, The Matrix, uh, and Inside Man, um, 
it seems hard for me to believe that all three of those were in the mid 80s range, uh, as I recall, and this one would be that much lower. But at the same time, the critics may be focusing in, as Brad said, on the, the exact things that we were able to nitpick. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. So uh, let's keep going then. Uh, let's do favorite line, favorite scene. Uh, whoever wants to go first, let's kick it off with our favorite lines. Well, I've already mentioned mine, so I don't think I need to, to repeat that. So why don't you guys go ahead and share yours? So for me, I, I had a tie on both of these. And so I ended up going, I gave the nudge uh, to my favorite scene. We'll talk about later. So I kicked the quote off of there. So my favorite quote then comes from my second favorite scene, which is very simply just the final battle in between, if you call it that, Creedy and, and V. And as far as the line, like I love, I'm just going to read a couple parts of it, not all of it, but, you know, Creedy, defiant till the end. You won't cry like him, will you? You're not afraid of death. You're like me. And then V looks at him and says, the only thing that you and I have in common, Mr. Creedy, is we're both about to die. Creedy says, how do you imagine that's going to happen? And V says, with my hands around your neck. They go in through the scene and then it just comes to this beautiful end, right? Die. Why won't you die? Why won't you die? And V just looks at him and says, beneath this mask, there is more than flesh. Beneath this mask, there's an idea, Mr. Creedy, and ideas are bulletproof. So that that's my quote. That that was up there for in contention for my favorite line as well. I've been going back and forth. I think I am going to stick with my original one. In our conversation, what crept what crept its way up to almost overtaking favorite line was uh, just him asking Evie to dance and her saying on the eve of your revolution, him saying his response being what would a revolution be without dancing that that crept its way back up just because of our conversation about how important that was that she came back to him. But I am going to stick with my favorite line being their final interaction together and her saying, I don't want you to die. And his response just being, that's the most beautiful thing you could have ever given me. Um, You know, he had opportunities to, she wanted to see what he looked like. Right. I mean, she, she kissed the mask, not the man. She wanted to go off with him. He knew that he would never be able to do that because of what he had become. And the greatest thing anyone could have ever given him was saying that they cared about him, that they didn't want him to not be on this earth because he had been alone for 20 years planning this thing. And him admitting that just as he died uh, was my favorite line. Let's, let's go into favorite scene, and I'm just going to piggyback off a of mic because that's my favorite scene, the final fight. And it's not even close. Uh, you know, him taking all of the bullets, the, the homage, you know, going back to um, the man with no name with Clint Eastwood, right. Using the, the lead vest to try to stop some of the many, many bullets that uh, got its way through to him, uh, him just still standing. Even after that first barrage, the, my turn, and just and and that's when the Wachowski's vision fully comes through in that scene. The blood splattering in ways that it never would, but it doesn't matter. Him throwing the knives, him using the knives, him somehow being strong enough that stabbing a guy in the chest is able to pick him, you know, eight feet into the air and throwing them off to the side, and then finally getting to Creedy, uh, who always seemed like the worst of the worst, uh, even above. The chancellor, right? The chancellor was always hiding behind a screen and talking to people. Creedy was there. He, they always talked about the black bags and things like that, and putting people in these cells and torturing them. So for him to finally end it with his hands around his throat, that's my favorite scene by far in V for Vendetta. Yeah, I'm right there with you. That's mine as well. So I guess I don't need to say much about it since you just highlighted it so well. All right. So, I mean, it was my second favorite, um, but I'm going to go for my favorite with the scene uh, that it literally gave me goosebumps the first time I saw it in the theater in 2006. And I want to just, again, kind of set the premise here, right? 2006, you're in the middle of the second uh, George W. Bush term. You've got the war in Iraq and in full swing. You also have the fact that we had the devastation of Hurricane Katrina in you know, August of 2005. There was a lot of social unrest and certainly not to the degree I don't think that we've seen in the last year in our country. 
Um, but this line, I think, just did an incredible job with it. And it's when Finch has just come back from Lark Hill, right? And so that he and his lieutenant are kind of talking through things. Um, and he, he says, you know, I had to see it. I had this feeling, all this stuff. And then he says, uh, it was like a perfect pattern laid out in front of me. I realize we're all a part of it. We're all trapped by it. And his lieutenant says, so uh, do you know what's going to happen? And then over this scene, just the girl is running with the, the mask on, right? No, it was a feeling, but I can guess with so much chaos, someone will do something stupid. And when they do, things will turn nasty. And you see the fingermen shoot the little girl and you see the mob coming out and then Sutler will be forced to do the only thing he knows how to do. And you see the armed crowd or the armed, you know, kind of uh, military coming out. You see the crowds at which point V all V needs to do is keep his word. And just that scene, you know, seeing that in the theater, it just gave me goosebumps because the reality is sometimes as a society, we do live on, on knife's edge, right? When there is so much tension uh, and it just spoke to me, this idea that all someone needs to do is something stupid and chaos will reign. And so that scene to me is is probably why this movie has spoken so much to me, why it, it does hold such a, a fond place in my heart, because I think in that scene, they do such a beautiful job of showing how thin that line can be uh, in an organized society and, and trying to work together to kind of lead to something better and not fall victim to our, our worst impulses. Yeah, I mean, I watching it this time and that scene playing out, I mean, I thought back to four months ago, you know, we had a group of people try to occupy the Capitol and how a scene 15 years ago resonates so much today. And a part of why we're doing this podcast is to see how movies uh, do resonate in today's world. And, and that image just popped into my head. So that, that definitely is a scene that stands the test of time. All right, let's, uh, before we give our stamp of approval, I do have a trivia question for you guys here. Uh, this is about our star, Hugo Weaving. So this came out in 2006. One year later, Hugo uh, lent his voice, again, not his face, to an iconic character in its own right. Uh, can you guys name the character that Hugo Weaving lent his voice to that very next summer? Um... I'm not going to be able to come up with anything better than that. So it's uh, it's the goat for the win. Uh, no, no, it was it was not him. Uh, it was Megatron in the first Transformers, and then in uh, all the subsequent tra Transformers films, Hugo Weaving as Megatron. Which I mean, for films not known for their acting performances, does a very very good job again with his voice uh lending uh, a lot of gravitas to a character well i know that uh, you know this was an unexciting episode for the leaderboard we tied on the other one but i'm I'm gonna just out of the kindness of my heart give brad half a point because i think we can all agree that megatron and pretty much the same person yeah yeah 100 yeah great great work guys uh stamp of approval time i think i know where this is headed uh, I'll kick it off. Absolutely. Stamp of approval. Um, we have we've we have things to nitpick about, but I'm just going to honestly, I'm just going to blame that on the Wachowskis. And maybe that just becomes a running joke on the show. Blame it on the Wachowskis. I don't know. My issues with this movie, I think I can stem back to them, or at least in my own mind, I can trace it to them. What I can all the positive things I can say about this movie are Hugo Weaving, are the action scenes and is the fact that it doesn't get bogged down in a lot of the ways that I felt the matrix did uh, with kind of overemphasizing some things that aren't important to overemphasize. So absolutely stamp for approval, watch this, enjoy it, uh, whether it be your first time or if you're thinking about a rewatch. Yeah. And you know, for me, obviously I tipped my hand at the beginning of this episode. I probably tipped my hand by picking this movie, but enthusiastically agree. Um, Two thumbs up. Go see it if you haven't seen it. It's uh, it's an enjoyable watch. Three for three. I agree. So we have yet to find a film that we do not go three for three on. Uh, will next week be the first time? Next week is Brad's choice. So find out what we think about that. It is 
white men can't jump. So as I alluded to earlier, slightly different than uh, the other movies we've done this month, but always a good change of pace to give us something. I, I want to say a little lighter, but I, I don't know. This is going to be the first time I have not seen white men can't jump. I have seen 10 minutes of it. I have seen portions of it. I've never actually seen all of it. I think it's a sports comedy. That's at least what I'm walking into. Maybe I'm in for a surprise. I have no idea. It will definitely lead to some interesting conversation next week when we talk about White Men Can't Jump. This week was V for Vendetta going three for three on the stamp of approval. Thank you so much uh, to everyone for listening to this. Come back, join us next week. Hop on Facebook, hop on social media. Let us know what you thought about V for Vendetta. Uh, there was obviously a lot of conversation that happened about the ideas in this movie, about what this movie represented to all of us. And I'm sure there are other representations and opinions out there because it is just one of those films. Let us know and absolutely come back next week. Other than that, guys, I'm Ethan Klein for Mike Duranic for Brad Miller. This podcast like ideas, I think is bulletproof. We'll see you next time.